After being tipped off by the prophet Nathan that strife will raise its head in David's own family, the king must now expect trouble from his children. But what happens next is almost unimaginably appalling and escalates to a family rift that cannot be undone. These are some of the Bible's darkest pages it's easy to criticise David for being more focused on defence and acquisition than he is on raising the next generation, but his sons are also adults with their own minds. However, their father did have an affair with another man's wife and had that man killed to cover up his tracks. In the Bible, what goes around comes around, and many believe that the shocking events which follow are a consequence of the king's affair with Bathsheba. My name is Chaz Bayfield, and this is Holy Bible Episode 72, Rape and Revenge. with a title like that one. The Bible is filled with sexual encounters and laws for who a man or woman may or may not sleep with. Men in Old Testament times appear to be able to sleep with unmarried women willy-nilly, but only if they then pay the woman's father a bride price and then marry her. A woman's only defence against actual rape appears to be if it takes place in the countryside where no one can hear her cries, the assumption being that had she been raped in a town, everyone would hear vocal evidence of her lack of consent. There is another account of a rape earlier in the Bible, in the book of Genesis. You may want to head back to episode 10, Forbidden Love, for a recap. Here, a man named Shechem rapes Jacob's daughter Dinah, but the jury remains out as to whether the rape simply meant that Dinah's family hadn't consented and that Dinah herself might have been willing. The sexual encounter which takes place in the second book of Samuel is much more clear-cut. The woman is in no way consenting and is actually begging her attacker to spare her. It makes uncomfortable listening and churches can turn a blind eye to passages like this one in their services, but if it's in the Bible, it's in the podcast. If you're new to Holy Bible, I'm taking people on a leisurely road trip through the entire Bible, and we're midway through the second book of Samuel, a book which takes readers through the reigns of Israel's first two kings, Saul and David. As for me, I'm neither a priest nor a theologian, I'm an advertising creative director, so what do I know? What I can say is that the Bible has impacted Western culture more than any book before or since, so regardless of your religious belief, it matters. Okay, deep breath. We're going to David's palace where one of his sons is lusting after, of all people, his sister. the book, David's son Amnon becomes so consumed with desire for his half-sister Tamar that it makes him ill and he obsesses over what he might do about this. Amnon is the son who David had with his wife Ahinoam, while Tamar and her brother Absalom were born to another of David's wives, Maka. Tamar is not only related to Amnon, but she is still an unmarried virgin. As such, 
Israelite law forbids any relationship, and the scandal of starting one without being married would be unimaginable, particularly in the royal court. Many believe that this law exists because men are often physically more powerful than women, and half or stepbrothers may well live in the same house as their female siblings who have no easy escape from their advances, leaving them vulnerable without legislation to protect them. What makes this crime even more sinister is that one of Amnon's male relatives becomes a co-conspirator. His cousin, Jonadab, notices Amnon moping around, and Amnon confides in him that he is in love with Tamar. What happens next proves that he is either lying or deluded. As soon as the attack is over, his love evaporates. Unbelievably, Jonadab aids and abets his cousin, sharing with him a plan as meticulous as it is clinical. Amnon is to feign illness, then tell the king to send Tamar to cook some food for him and feed him like a nurse. Dutifully, Tamar brings food to her brother's house, prepares some dough and bakes it. When she tries to feed him, he refuses to take any, then sends everyone else out of the room. Amnon tells her to bring the food to his bedroom so that he can eat out of her hand, but no sooner is Tamar next to the bed than he grabs her like an archetypal fairy tale wolf and demands that she join him under the covers. The poor girl begs for mercy. She cannot bear to break the code that forbids sex before marriage and tells her brother that he is not only committing a wicked act, but that it will ruin her. In Old Testament times, it is a given that no man of any status will marry a woman who is not a virgin. In a desperate bid to save her virtue, Tamar assures her attacker that David will allow their marriage, but Amnon isn't after a wife. His blood is up and he needs to finish what he has started. It is highly debatable that David would actually allow Amnon and Tamar to marry as Tamar suggests. Jewish law forbids a man to have sexual relations with his father's daughter. No sooner has he raped his sister than Amnon begins to loathe her, ordering her to get up and get out. Again, she begs for mercy, telling him that sending her away would be worse than anything he has already done. The book describes how Amnon now hates Tamar more than he ever loved her. Unmoved by her cries, he orders a servant to remove her from the building, then locks the door. Tamar exits, a broken and desolate woman. She tears the robes that advertise the fact that she is still a virgin, puts ash on her head as a sign of grief, and walks away, crying. With no value as a wife now that she has been violated, Tamar will most likely spend the rest of her life in the safety of the royal harem. When her brother Absalom sees Tamar, he immediately guesses what has happened and that Amnon is behind his sister's distress. Appearing to try and smooth things over, he tells Tamar to lie low. Blood is thicker than water, he tells her, and she shouldn't take it to heart. Privately, though, he is furious. David too is enraged at his son's terrible actions, but despite being a fearless warrior, he is a weak father and takes no action against Amnon. 
Meanwhile, Absalom takes care of his sister, biding his time and plotting his revenge. Time passes, but Absalom's fury at his brother does not dim. He has had plenty of opportunity to perfect his plan to lure his brother into a trap without arousing any suspicion. It is sheep shearing season, and he is organising a feast at his estate, some eight miles northeast of Jerusalem. I'll put the metric measures in the show notes. He originally invites David and his court, but the king feels this would be too great an expense for his son to shoulder. Absalom possibly knows that this will be his father's response and so feels safe to press him, but the answer is still no. However, for his plan to work, Absalom needs Amnon to be there, and so he suggests to his father that, now he won't be present, he should send Amnon instead. As David's eldest son, it makes sense for him to represent the king, and even though David seems unsure why Absalom should want Amnon there, he agrees to the plan. Before the feast begins, Absalom briefs his men to wait until Amnon is drunk, at which point he will give them the signal to kill him. The men are clearly uncomfortable with this. Assassinating the king's son is a big deal, but Absalom reassures them that the order is legitimate and that they should be brave and strong. All David's sons attend Absalom's feast and witness the brutal murder of their brother by Absalom's henchmen. Terrified in case their own lives are endangered too, the men leap onto their mules and flee in panic. When the news first reaches the king, he believes that all his sons have been killed and he and all his attendants tear their clothes in grief. Jonadab re-enters the story to reassure David that only Amnon is dead, explaining to him that Absalom has been planning revenge ever since Tamar's rape, a rape which Jonadab fails to mention he both suggested and planned. Absalom flees the scene of the crime, suggesting that Amnon's death was a personal vendetta rather than a public act of justice. Meanwhile, a large crowd of people led by David's remaining sons approached the palace, proving to the king that Jonadab was speaking the truth. Inside the building, the princes and their father weep loudly at the loss of their brother and son. Absalom remains in hiding outside Israel, somewhere to the east of the Sea of Galilee. David mourns Amnon for a long time, but once he has processed his loss, he longs to see Absalom. At this point in his reign, David is no longer under attack from enemy armies, and so the only assaults that he must now deal with are internal ones within his own family. Being a religious man, he believes sincerely that he has brought all this on himself for having Uriah killed after stealing his wife. The king understands fully that this is what Nathan the prophet promised would happen and that he is simply reaping what he has sown. Knowing that David is deeply distressed that Absalom is still in self-enforced exile, his nephew and army commander Joab hatches a plan. Joab summons a woman from the nearby city of Tekoa who is known for her wisdom. 
After a thorough briefing from the king's second-in-command, the woman dresses in mourning clothes and looks convincingly like someone who has been grieving for many days. She then returns to the palace where she falls on her face before David and begs for his help. Intrigued, the king wants to hear her story. She is a widow, she tells him. She had two sons who got into a fight with one another and without anyone to intervene, one was killed. Now the rest of her clan want the woman to hand over her surviving son so that they can kill him for what he has done, leaving her with no one left to carry on her family name. They would put out the only burning coal I have left, she tells the king. Clearly moved by the woman's story, David assures her that he will issue an order on her behalf to protect her surviving son. Just to be sure that David has committed himself, the woman asks for assurance that she won't be punished and that this won't reflect badly on him. David is adamant that if anyone has a problem with his order, they are to come to him and he will shut them down. David may have agreed to send out an edict, but the woman wants even greater assurance of her son's future safety. At this time in Israel, it is common for a close relative of a murder victim to avenge the killing. She asks the king to intervene for her with God to ensure that the family doesn't take matters into its own hands. David promises on oath that her son will remain untouched. The woman then lands her sucker punch. The king has just exposed his own hypocrisy and his inaction threatens to damage Israel's relationship with God. David is willing to waive Israel's law to help repatriate her son, while Absalom is left to make his own luck in a pagan country with no guarantee for his own personal safety. Amnon is dead and cannot be brought back, a tragedy that she describes as water that is poured out onto the ground and which cannot be recovered. But God doesn't want his people permanently banished, she tells David. To keep up the illusion that her own case is genuine, the woman tells the king that she is afraid of her own family, which is why she came to ask him to intervene and stop the avenger of blood from exacting biblical justice on her only living son. The woman shares her hope that David's promise will ensure her own future security. Without a son to provide for her, she will be destitute. Flattering him, she tells the king that to her he is like an angel who can discern good and evil. By now the penny has dropped with David and he realises that this quote marks widow has been sent to him by Joab. She comes clean and assures the king that Joab has done this to repair the awful situation, adding in how smart she feels the king to be to have worked this out. It is a bold move by Joab, but he knows his uncle and has read the room well, and David agrees for his wayward son to be brought home. Enormously relieved, Joab prostrates himself before David, thanking him for believing in him. Absalom is brought back to Israel, but on the condition that he remains in his own house and has no contact with the king, somewhat diluting the reconciliation. It is a difficult situation. David needs to show mercy, but Amnon needs justice. 
Also, the king can't be seen to be losing face. And however terrible Amnon's crime was, this exile away from exile allows Absalom time to consider the awfulness of his own. According to the second book of Samuel, Absalom is handsome and charming and is blessed with fabulous hair, which he only cuts twice a year. When it is cut off, the hair weighs an astonishing five pounds. He has three sons and a daughter, who he names Tamar in honour of his wretched and ruined sister. He remains in Jerusalem for two years without once seeing his father, and despite repeated requests to Joab to come and meet him, the commander ghosts him. Finally, Absalom sets a field neighbouring Joab's property on fire, which has the desired effect of bringing the man out of Jerusalem. When the two meet, Absalom tells Joab that he might as well have remained out east. He wants to see his father, he says, and if he is found guilty of any crime, to be put to death. The plan works, and finally David summons his son to the palace. The rogue prince bows down before the king, and David kisses him. Absalom's exile is over. Despite returning to Jerusalem, Absalom is fed up of being made to feel like the black sheep of the family. Eventually, enough is enough, and he decides to take direct action. The prince may have a keen sense of justice, but this appears to be matched by his ego. He arms himself with chariots and a cohort of 50 bodyguards and holds court at the gates of Jerusalem. Here, he tells anyone from Israel hoping to have a legal claim settled that their case may be valid, but no one from the king's office can see them. He then adds that if he were made a judge, then he would make sure personally that they received justice. Absalom has the popular touch and kisses the hand of anyone who bows down to him. The people are no doubt amazed that a royal prince is making himself so accessible. Had he consulted with David beforehand, he may well have received his blessing. Such an offer of help would relieve the king of some of his responsibilities, in the same way that Moses eventually delegated the day-to-day -day management of the Israelite camp to other leaders. Absalom's actions win him a huge number of fans among the people. The Bible account describes how he stole their hearts, but the success goes to his head. Four years after his return, he asks permission from David to travel to Hebron on the pretense of fulfilling a vow. He claims that he promised to worship God there should he be welcomed back in Jerusalem, but he is lying. His real purpose is as audacious as it is treacherous. David's renegade son is about to set himself up as king of Israel. Holy Bible is written and produced by me, Chas Bayfield, with music by Michael Old and John Hawkins Music. Cover art is by Lisa Goff. And if you like reading as much as you do listening, you can find Snakes and Angels, a secular walk through the first five books of the Bible, available on Amazon. You can also find us on Twitter and Facebook. Just search Holy Bible Podcast. And if you like what you're hearing, why not give us a five-star rating? Thank you very much, and see you all next time.